Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, I think you'll agree with me when I say that there are a lot of different ways to spend your time. There are a lot of different ways to spend your time. For example, you can volunteer at a soup kitchen. You can go to the mall. You can visit the beach. You can play golf. You could take a trip to the Grand Canyon. You could spend some time with your neighbors. Or instead of doing those things, you can do what this gentleman, Jeff Miller, decided to do. Jeff Miller is an independent businessman from Roger Park, Illinois, and in January of 2010, he clinched his third consecutive title as, get this, the ultimate couch potato. <laughs> Remember how your parents told you not to be a couch potato? Well, this guy won a contest for being the ultimate couch potato, not once, not twice, but three times, at Chicago's ESPN Zone. Jeff Miller obtained this coveted title by watching TV sports programming for 72 straight sleepless hours. Oh no, I hear a lot of that right now. Miller, who was 26 years old at the time, bested three other competitors and pushed himself beyond the Guinness World Record for nonstop TV viewing, although it's worth noting that in recent years this record has been shattered. And by the way, for those of us who are curious, ESPN's TV marathon rules mirror the rules of Guinness, and that is they include, here they are, number one, no sleeping, and number two, no leaving the chair except for three daily bathroom breaks and hourly five-minute stretches. That's all. This one might be the hardest part. The venue controlled the remote control from the time the four contestants first reclined on New Year's Day, and 72 hours later, Miller sat alone. I'm sure his parents were very proud. His superior sluggishness earned him a new recliner, a $1,000 gift card toward the purchase of a television, money for one year for his cable satellite bills, $1,000 in ESPN zone credit, and the ultimate couch potato trophy. Can you all see these trophies? Adorned with an actual spud, just like the trophies that he won in 2008 and 2009. There are a lot of different ways to spend your time. And that is certainly one of them. But folks, just to get a little more theological and a little more spiritual, because this is a sermon, isn't it? Have you ever thought about how Jesus spent his time? How did Jesus spend his time? Jesus was with us on earth for 33 years. He was about 33 years old when he was crucified. But what's interesting is the Gospels. And when I mention the Gospels, I'm referring to the first four books of the New Testament, what are they? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, which document the story of Jesus. Well, with the exception of a story about his birth and then a brief reference to what happened when he was 12 years old at the temple, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mainly focus on the last three years of Jesus' life. 
They're not biographies in the traditional sense of the term. They mainly focus on the last three years of Jesus' life, and within those three years, their primary interest is in one specific period of time, the last 24 hours. The gospel writers were convinced, and so are we as a church, that these 24 hours changed the world. And so, as we find ourselves in the season of Lent, and if you're not familiar with Lent, Lent is the season, it's 40 days long, it begins on Ash Wednesday, and it ends on Saturday night, just before Easter Sunday. It's the 40-day season, not including Sundays. Sundays are not a part of Lent because Sundays are considered to be a mini Easter. But as we find ourselves in the season of Lent, uh, we're going to journey through a message series here at Asbury called 24 Hours That Changed the World. 24 Hours That Changed the World. Uh, This sermon series is based on a book of the same name by Adam Hamilton. Uh, Perhaps you recognize that name. Um, He's a pastor in the Kansas City area. And so in these sermons, in these messages, we are going to zero in and we are going to look carefully at the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly life. When the Apostle Paul, uh, one of the writers of the New Testament, in fact, Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament, uh, well, when the Apostle Paul uh, summarized the gospel, the good news of Jesus for us, Paul did so with these words. Uh, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He said, for I, that is Paul, decided that while I was with you, in other words, while I was with the people of Corinth, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I would forget everything, Paul said, except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. So for Paul, and not just for Paul, but for the other writers of the New Testament, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus represent the pinnacle of the gospel, the, the, the culmination, the, the, the completion of God's saving work. And so in these messages, we are going to dig deep into the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And we're going to do so drawing from dis- different disciplines like theology, archaeology, geography, history. But I promise, not in a way that's going to be boring. In fact, I think you're going to find this interesting, intriguing, fascinating. In fact, folks, By the time we're done with the sermon series on Easter Sunday, we're going to see with more clarity, more insight, more depth, the significance of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection, and the meaning these events have for our lives. Not just our lives here on earth, but our lives into eternity. And so if we're looking at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, and Jesus died on what day? Good Friday, then our starting point is what happened one day before Good Friday when Jesus gathered with the disciples in the upper room and they shared a final meal, a meal that we have come to call the Last Supper. Now, in this sermon series, we're going to be drawing primarily from the Gospel of Mark. I mentioned that there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Matthew is actually the first Gospel in the New Testament, But scholars believe that it was not the first gospel written. Instead, the majority of scholars hold that Mark, the second gospel in the New Testament, that Mark was the first gospel written, written probably sometime in the mid-60s AD, so about 30 years after Jesus. We're going to be drawn primarily from the gospel of Mark. So listen with me to what Mark says here in chapter 14 of his gospel. Mark is 16 chapters long, so with chapter 14, 
we're coming to the end. This is what Mark says happened on Holy Thursday, the day before Good Friday. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, and I promise we're going to talk more about that in just a moment, what that meant. Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? And so it's at this point that Jesus instructs the disciples where to prepare the Passover meal. And then this is what happens that evening as Jesus and the disciples are sitting down enjoying that meal. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink anew in the kingdom of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Folks, how do we get to this point that Jesus being as popular as he was how do we get to this point that in just a few hours he was going to be betrayed by one of his own disciples, arrested, tried, and then finally executed? Check out the way Adam Hamilton puts it in his book, 24 Hours That Changed the World. He says, seldom have the apparent fortunes of any historical figure changed as quickly and dramatically as did those of Jesus and the last week of his life. Isn't that true? So we're talking about Holy Thursday. Well, remember just a few days before Holy Thursday, on Palm Sunday, Jesus came into Jerusalem, the capital city, on a donkey, and how excited the crowd was to see him. The people were lining the streets, and they were waving palm branches, and they were shouting out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Do you know what Hosanna means in the Hebrew? Hosanna essentially means, save us! deliver us. In other words, the crowd was saying to Jesus, Jesus, save us. Jesus, deliver us. You see, the crowd rightly recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. They rightly recognized that Jesus was God's anointed one, but the crowd was also caught up in their own definitions of Messiahship. The crowd assumed that as the Messiah, Jesus had come as an earthly ruler to liberate Israel from Roman occupation. Because bear in mind that during this period of time, 2,000 years ago, Rome was oppressing the Jewish people, subjugating the Jewish people, treating the Jewish people as second-class citizens in their own land, the very land that God had given them, going all the way back to their ancestors. And so here comes Jesus on Palm Sunday, and he's coming into where? The capital city, the seat of political power, and they're waving palm branches. Palm branches were a sign of revolt. And they were shouting out, save us, deliver us. Save us, Jesus. Save us from the Romans. They were expecting Jesus to lead a revolt, an insurrection. They had no idea what it actually meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Was he the Messiah? Definitely. But they had no idea what it meant for him to be the Messiah. That in just a few days, he was going to be put up on a cross and crucified for the sins of the world. Again, they were so caught up in their own definitions of Messiahship that their expectations were way off. It's important 
to have the right expectations. It reminds me of a story that happened back in 2005. This is a true story. There was a woman who entered a radio contest in Lexington, Kentucky. So one day she was listening to the radio, as many of us do, and she heard the DJ say on the program that the 10th caller at a specified period of time was going to win a prize of 100 grand. And so she immediately thought of all the things that she could do with 100 grand. So she quickly gave up her evening plan. She was going to watch American Idol that night. She put that on the back burner. And instead, she listened to the radio station all evening, and she had the phone right by her side. And then when the DJ said, it's time to call in, she called in. Have any of you ever done this before? She called in, and she became the 10th caller. Oh, my goodness, she was so excited. She was putting her kids to bed, and she said, hey, listen, we're going to get 100 grand. You know what we're going to do? We're going to go on a shopping spree. We're going to buy a new minivan. We're going to buy a house with a backyard. $100,000 went a lot further in 2005 than probably does today. So she goes to the radio station the very next day to claim her prize. You know what the DJ gave her? This. A 100 grand candy bar. Was she amused? Absolutely not. She was furious. She was enraged. She hired an attorney and sued the radio station for false advertisement. The radio station said to her, well, how about $5,000? She said, no, I don't want $5,000. I want $100,000. Well, the radio station ended up parting ways with the DJ, who was trying to make a name for himself, and then they settled with that woman for an undisclosed amount of money. The wrong expectations can lead to crushing disappointment, even anger. The crowd on Palm Sunday had the wrong expectations of Jesus. But the truth is, it wasn't just the crowd. The disciples did too. Remember earlier in the Gospel of Mark, James and John, two of the disciples, came to Jesus. Do you remember what they asked him? Lord, grant that one of us might sit at your right and one of us might sit at your left when you come into your glory. They were also assuming that Jesus had come to toss out Rome and set up this earthly kingdom. They wanted to reign with Jesus and his glory. And then when the other ten disciples heard about it, they were indignant and outraged. Well, what about us? What about me? Jesus, I want to reign with you in your glory. Again, even the disciples had expectations that were way off. But Jesus, being the perfect teacher that he was, he patiently worked with these disciples. Jesus was so much more patient than any of us. He patiently worked with them to give them a fuller picture of what was to come. And that's what he was doing on Holy Thursday, the day before Good Friday. Now, it's worth pointing out that the religious officials at this point, they were already at odds with Jesus. They were at odds with Jesus from the very beginning. They couldn't stand Jesus. But then what happened the day after Palm Sunday is Jesus came back into Jerusalem. He went to the temple when he saw the money changers and the people selling sacrificial animals and exploiting the poor and making a mockery of God's temple, what did he do? He cleansed it. He drove them all out. Well, when Jesus did that, that was the hair that broke the camel's back, so to speak. At that point, the religious leaders wanted nothing more than for Jesus to die. This is how Mark puts it. This is Mark chapter 11, verse 18. 
It says, when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, that is when they heard that he had cleansed the temple on Holy Monday, the day after Palm Sunday, they began planning how to do what? How to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. And so at this point, the crowd in Jerusalem was still behind Jesus. So the religious leaders knew that their hands were tied. If they were to seize him publicly, it could create a riot, a mob. They had to find some clever way to seize Jesus privately. Well, they found that way through one of Jesus' own disciples. Who was that? Judas, who on Wednesday, remember Jesus came to Jerusalem Palm Sunday, he cleansed the temple on Monday, he did some teaching and other things on Tuesday, but then on Wednesday, Judas approached the religious leaders and agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So on Thursday, knowing what was to come, Jesus gathered with those disciples and they shared one final meal. And the meal that they were celebrating that evening wasn't just any ordinary meal. What was it? The Passover. Now, the Passover, also called the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the Passover is incredibly significant for Jewish people. It commemorates one of the central events of the Old Testament, God saving the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. So Jesus was 2,000 years ago. Jesus, you know, came among us 2,000 years ago. Well, 1,200 years before Jesus, God's people, the Israelites, they were enslaved in Egypt. They had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They were being oppressed by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They cried out to God for mercy, for rescue, for deliverance. And so God sent them a deliverer through the person of Moses. So Moses came to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and Moses said to Pharaoh, let the people of God go. But Pharaoh, he was stubborn. He was hard-hearted. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to lose all these Hebrew people who are working as my slaves. So what God did to demonstrate his sovereignty over Pharaoh and his sovereignty over the universe is God sent a series of plagues upon the Egyptians. How many plagues did God send? Ten. Do you remember what some of those plagues were? The frogs, the locusts. At one point, God turned the waters of the Nile River into blood, but Pharaoh still would not relent. He still was stubborn. The last plague that God sent was by far the most dreadful the death of the firstborn. Essentially, God promised to strike down the firstborn in every Egyptian household and among every flock in Egypt. And the way that God would distinguish between the firstborn of the Egyptians and the firstborn of the Israelites is God told the Israelites through Moses, take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, paint it over the doorpost. That way, when the angel of death comes, the angel of death will do what? Pass over your homes. Hence the name Passover. The angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites. It only affected the Egyptians. That was pretty extreme. There's no question about it. But it was that last plague that finally made Pharaoh relent. Pharaoh said to Moses, get these people, get out of here. And so they left. And actually they left so quickly that the bread they were baking didn't have time to rise up, which is why this festival is also called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. The Passover, the Festival of the Unleavened Bread, that's what Jesus and the disciples were sharing in during the Last Supper. They were commemorating the events of the Exodus. 
And so what Jewish people would do, and Jewish people do this to this very day every spring, they would gather together, and they would sit down, and they would eat a lamb, they would eat unleavened bread, they would eat bitter herbs as a way of reflecting on the bitterness of slavery in Egypt, they would drink wine. This was a meal that lasted for hours, hours and hours and hours, and it was deeply entrenched in ritual. Sometimes we criticize rituals for being repetitive, but at their very best, rituals have this way of grounding us. Think of some of the rituals that you do, some of the rituals that you and your family engage in. So we have a ritual in our home, the Jones household, every single night. In fact, we engaged in this ritual uh, yesterday evening. We have our five-year-old twins. I know I never talk about them, Hannah and Noah. They're going to start kindergarten this fall. And so what we do every evening after dinner time, Hannah and Noah have a bath and they put on their pajamas. And then as we're winding down, we'll read them a bedtime story. And then as we're putting them to bed, we'll say a word of prayer. We'll end that time of prayer with the Lord's Prayer. And then there's a question that Amanda and I ask Hannah and Noah. We ask them this question every single night. If we don't ask them this question, they'll remind us to ask them that question. The question is this. What kind of tucking do you want? What kind of tucking do you want? I don't know how this got started. We started this like a year or two ago. What kind of tucking do you want? And so they'll say, I want a bunny tucking. And so I'll say, okay. I'll put my hands like this and I'll <laughs> hop like a bunny. I'll take my nose. I'll touch their nose. I'll give them what we call a bunny kiss. And that's how I tuck them in. Or they'll say, I want a beaver tucking. All right. I got to pretend to be a beaver. Was that pretty good? I tuck them in. I put the comforter over them. Or last night, Hannah said, I want a bird tucking. So I said, okay. Go, go, go. Pretending to be a bird. Or the other night, Noah said, I want two tuckins. I want a robot and a T-Rex. I said, all right. So I went beep, 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 pretending to be a robot. And then, you know, pretending to be a T-Rex. Oh, my gosh. My microphone doesn't like that. Is it ridiculous? Sure. Is it silly? Is it over the top? Absolutely. But you know what? This is a ritual that we do every single night in our house, and it's a ritual that grounds our five-year-old twins in the story of their parents' love for them. The rituals within the Passover feast grounded the Israelites in the story of the God who saves, the God who frees, the God who delivers. But then Jesus did something during the Passover that wasn't a part of the ritual. He took a loaf of bread. He broke it. He gave it to them. He said, this is my body. When he said, this is my body, that was his way of saying, hey, in a few hours, I'm going to be put up on a cross. After being beaten and spit upon, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be broken. So you don't have to be broken. The disciples didn't understand all that, but nevertheless, they ate. And then afterwards, Jesus took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. Now again, this was not a part of the Passover ritual. And yet when those disciples, who were good Jewish people, when they heard those words, the blood of the covenant, they would have immediately thought back to Exodus chapter 24, 
When Moses, after God had freed the people of Israel from slavery, well, Moses, what he did was he took a bull, he slaughtered the bull, he sprinkled the blood on the people. What we have to recognize about Jewish culture, it's very visual. He sprinkled the blood on the people as the people declared, behold, the blood of the covenant. So these disciples were to remember that as Jesus said, the blood of the covenant. The disciples also would have thought about what God had said through the prophet Jeremiah 600 years earlier. This is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, notice that phrase, new covenant, with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. The Israelites had been bound to God as a woman is bound to her husband. God had chosen the Israelites from all the peoples of the earth to be his own special possession. And yet these Israelites had essentially cheated on God. They turned away from God. They went after other idols, false idols. And yet God said, I still love you. I'm still crazy about you. I still want to be in a relationship with you. In fact, one day in the future, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. That new covenant that Jeremiah spoke about, or that God spoke about through Jeremiah, that new covenant is what Jesus had in mind when he took that cup of wine. When Jesus took that cup of wine and he said, this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people, what he was doing was he was transforming the Passover meal into the sacrament of holy communion, what we also call the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. The Israelites had been a covenant people by the blood of animals, and yet the Last Supper was the establishment of a new covenant by the blood of the Lord Jesus. And just as God had freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, through the death of Jesus on the cross, God was going to free all of us from slavery to sin and death. This new covenant wasn't just meant for the people of Israel. It was meant for everybody. And so every time we gather at this table, and we're going to gather at this table in just a moment. Some of you are wondering why we're celebrating communion today, because we typically celebrate communion the first Sunday of the month. We're going to celebrate it because that's what we're talking about this morning. Every time we gather at this table, well, we're reminded of God's love. We're reminded of God's faithfulness. We're reminded of God's commitment to us, God's pursuit of us. We're reminded of who we are as people, that we are God's children. We are God's sons and daughters. Holy communion is a meal that defines us. What defines you? What defines me? Is it our circumstances? The reality of what we're going through, does that define us? Is it the abuse that we've suffered? Is it the negative words and the lies that other people have spoken over us? Do we internalize those things? Or instead, do we come to this table 
and allow God to tell us who we truly are. Holy communion is a meal that defines us. Alex Haley's book, Roots, tells a story of an African man named Kunta Kente, who was born in 1750 in Gambia. But when he was a young man, he was kidnapped, he was forced on a ship, and he was brought to America, where he lived as an enslaved person, working on a plantation. Every single day he was beaten, and as he was being beaten, his oppressor said to him, you don't matter, you don't have any worth, you don't have any value. You will ne never be anything more than a slave. That's all you will ever amount to. So after a while, having to endure that, Kutakende began to believe that. He internalized that. But then one day, he drove the man who was enslaving him to a dance. And he sat outside in the buggy because he wasn't able to come inside the house. And he heard the music coming from inside the house as people were dancing. But then suddenly he heard a different kind of music that seemed familiar. And it wasn't coming from inside the house. It was coming from the quarters of those who were enslaved. So he followed it. And suddenly he came across this man who was playing African music. His music. Music that he had not heard since he was a child. He and this guy got to talking. He found out that he had come from his homeland. That the two of them shared a background. And in fact, they had a conversation in their own native language. He hadn't had a conversation in his own native language since he had been enslaved. Well, later that night, Kuta Kente went back to the plantation. He fell on the floor of the cabin, and he was weeping. He was weeping for what he had almost forgotten, but he was also weeping with joy for what he had last remembered. He was not a slave. He was an African a native of Gambia. He was a man with his own culture, his own language, his own people. The music reminded him who he truly was. This meal, Holy Communion, it reminds us who we truly are. It silences the outside voices that say we don't matter, we don't have value, we don't measure up. And it says, yes, you do matter. You are God's child. You are God's person. You are God's son or daughter. You are somebody who has been brought into the new covenant by the blood of the Lord Jesus. The blood that was spilled for all of us. Each and every one of us. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.